Hello and welcome to Strong Habits, the accidentally feminist fitness podcast on all things training, nutrition and mindset. I am your host, Penny Varvaridis, and this is episode 49. How's everybody doing? I have been working on a few different things at the moment, including the launch of a new digital product. The Strong Habits 30-Day Bender is a 30-day mobility protocol, helping you take your flexibility and control to the next level. There will also be an accompanying but separate Strong Habits Bender membership, where for just $9.99 a month, you get access to a library of 5-15 to minute mobility videos, targeting different areas. I'll be adding new videos three to five times a week and members will have the chance to make requests. Anybody who purchases the 30-day Bender protocol will also get a lifetime discount on the membership, paying just $7.50 a month instead. Pre-orders are now open for the 30-day Bender. I'll pop the link up in the show notes for you, so just head on to wherever you're watching, listening to the podcast, or you can go to my website, pennywavridis.com, and click that bender button at the top. Early bird price for this is £50, which, to be honest, is an absolute bargain, and the price is going to go up on the 15th of November to £75. Do not miss out. Moving well is so, so important. It's important for us as humans just living through life, for being a human who can still move well as we get old, for being able to play with the kids. It's also incredibly important for athletes and anyone trying to lift or play a sport, maybe running around playing football and you fall in an awkward way, but if your body moves in an awkward way, you're less likely to get hurt. Now, I am really excited about this and I really hope that you pre-order the programme and it's going to be yours for life. Any questions, you can find me on Instagram at superpenny. In today's episode, I'm speaking with weightlifting coach Michaela Breeze about weightlifting, lockdown and setting Commonwealth records. It's a bit of a controversial episode as Michaela spills the tea on the bureaucracy of Olympic lifting in the UK, as well as some insight into her 20-year career as an athlete. I hope you enjoy the episode, and being the only girl in an otherwise male-dominated industry was a bit tough. Let me know what you think. Hi, welcome to the show, Michaela. How's it going? It's going very well. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you so much for coming on. Why don't we start with you introducing yourself, telling the listeners who they're listening to? Yeah, okay. So my name is Michaela Breeze. Um, background in the sport of Olympic weightlifting. Uh, completed actively at the highest levels for about 25 years. I've also got a background in teaching secondary physical education and running my own business. We had a, a gym, an actual physical gym uh, in the Welsh Valleys. And now I am uh, still self-employed, but working a little bit more remotely. And I would say running training camps for those that are keen to come and train with me, although COVID-19 has decided it wanted to mess up everyone's plans for 2020. So um, yeah, a few things on hold or being modified, but that's me. Training camps right now must be tough. You did one last week, right? Yeah, so we run uh, three or six day training camps whereby we invite people to come and live with us. Um, we normally provide food, accommodation and, and a training facility um, whereby I offload my knowledge and information to help people move better uh, and to, to lift safely and be more effective in what they're doing. But with COVID-19, we've had to rethink slightly and we can no longer offer the food and accommodation side of it. So people are sorting themselves out with somewhere to eat and sleep and then they still come and do the training as normal, normal, albeit socially distanced. How many people were you able to have in the camp when you did it last week? So funnily, the numbers haven't actually changed because uh, with the two metre ruling and making sure that everybody is socially distanced, we can still accommodate up to a maximum of... 10 people um 10 would be a bit of a squeeze uh, eight people is quite comfortable and i think we had i think we had eight the other the other week on a training camp and i had a one day seminar as well and that was uh, pretty much maxed out we we had nine nine 
was it 10? Oh, nine people plus one on Zoom. So, um, so yeah, the training side of it isn't affected too much, but, but obviously the, the other part of the, the camp in terms of the social side of it is somewhat affected. Hopefully things will be able to go back to normal one day. Normal? What is that? I, I just don't <laughs> know what normal is. I'm, yeah, we, you know, I think things, I think there's a lot of positives to come out of this, which, you know, it's changed how people operate. It's made people who are proactive anyway think outside the box, which we've tried to do. And yeah, I hope that, I hope that, you know, things will have some kind of normality going forward, whatever that might be. I think it's been really interesting from a coaching point of view, doing sessions over Zoom, because it, it forces you to be more considered in your coaching cues to your client. And it also forces your client to pay more attention to what they're doing because they have to do it for themselves, which I, th- I have found to be quite helpful, especially for beginners being like, oh, okay, wait a second. This is what I'm supposed to be doing. How have you found it? Yeah, it's been very interesting. I'm, I'm a bit of a, I, I don't like technology. I'm not going to lie. I, I kind of shy away from it and I always have done. But uh, if we look at the positives in a negative situation, this has really forced me to step up and, and get comfortable with new technology. Um, so when we realised that we'd fallen through every single loophole government were offering, uh, it, it made me panic a little bit. So that's when we started to use Zoom. And yeah, I put, put my services out there to say I'm, I'm going to be running small group Uh, sessions where people sign up and basically I have everybody on the screen and I give them a load of abuse and they seem to enjoy it and um, uh, so yeah we it's been innovative I guess is probably the way to look at it It's, it's made me think differently about how we can coach and what's been fantastic is it's opened doors to meet people and coach people from all over the world I have literally had people from from everywhere, um, including one lady who signed up for a six-week block of sessions from a, a cruise ship that she oh, was wow. working on, and it really has been quite humbling as to how many people from all over have, have been interested and signed up with me. That's very cool. Let's talk about the 2014 Commonwealth Games. Now, this is a really cool story because you came out of retirement to go and compete again, right? And then you won a medal. Yes. <laughs> So first thing to know about me is I'm, I'm stubborn, I'm pig-headed, and I'm very focused in what I do. So when somebody says to me, oh, you can't do something, that is, I guess, the, all the motivation I need to, to prove people wrong. And uh, long story short, I retired officially in 2010 after the Delhi Commonwealth Games with a silver medal. Um, gold was four years before that. And I'd had a rough, a rough time between 2008 and 2010 with a broken back. Um, managed to get some kind of fitness back for the Delhi Commonwealth Games and then retired. Uh, since then, I left my teaching job and I set up a new gym. Um, and yeah, life was going really well. I was coaching my own athletes. And anyway, I used to give the guys a lot of hassle in the gym and, and I'd be giving it all the banter saying, you know, come on guys, man, I can still lift those weights. And they didn't like that very much. So Long story short, I, I turned up to coach at the Welsh Championships and to coach my, my lifters and only to find that my name was on the start list. <laughs> so, they, yeah, basically it backfired a little bit, that banter. And I hadn't lifted a weight for two and a half years, apart from maybe 10 kilos, just, just doing light demonstrations for the kids. And anyway, I'm not one to turn down a challenge, so I put my lifting shoes on, had a go. And I hit 25 kilos above qualification for the Glasgow Commonwealth Games. Oh, that's uh, very cool. And that was when the press started on, on at me saying, oh, are you coming out of retirement? And I'll be honest with you, for several months, I just kept brushing it off. And I wasn't interested. I was just, I was just messing around. And then it started to get a little bit more serious. And I started to do a little bit of training. And anyway, Sinead sat me down um, one day and said, right, mate, what, what are you doing? And even with her, I said... I don't know, I'm just messing. And she turned around, put her foot down and said, no, you either decide you're going to do it and do it properly or stop messing everyone around and, and pack it up. So that was it. Head screwed back on. Suddenly, literally within, I, I was sat in a hot tub. We just walked up Snowden that, that day and I was sat in a hot tub with a glass of wine and I literally poured the wine over the side of the hot tub, got out of the hot tub and went and wrote my training program. Uh-huh. And that was it. And then, yeah, the press, press were... Uh, there's some somebody wrote in the press oh 35 is she too old for this is she past it 
or is, is breeze past it and I, I just thought right that's the motivation I need um yeah well went away um personal personal best lifts but beat, beat, beat my own British records I set 12 years before and at the age of 35 came away with a bronze medal so I love that proving that 35 is not too old just a number just the number how did you get into Olympic lifting in the first place I took part in a PE lesson at school um I was at Weybridge school in Cornwall and the female PE teacher that day was away so I decided that you know I just joined in with whatever activity was going on and one of the the male teachers said to us right girls we're going to do weightlifting and we knew nothing about it other than the fact that it was lifting weights we didn't know what to expect and that was it I was invited to uh, train in the club and within a couple of sessions I was competing and I never looked back that was literally how it started that's wonderful what what was it like I guess it it's probably a bit different now than it was 20 years ago but what was it like fighting to be a top athlete in quite a male-dominated sport oh, you wouldn't believe you wouldn't believe the am I allowed to swear on this <laughs> yeah yeah, I couldn't believe the shit I went through as, as, a, as a young female at the age of 13 starting out in a male, male dominated sport I went home after a couple of sessions and I said to my mum mum I'm gonna do a competition and she said no you're not and and that was how it started it was people saying don't be silly you can't do that you know you're a girl you can't lift weights and again, me being stubborn and pig-headed, if somebody says no, I'm going to do what I can to, to prove them wrong. And that was one of the reasons I stuck with it. Um, I went through the sport two and a half decades, and we're still battling. We are still battling to be heard. And it's getting better. And it, it has seriously got better. But the first decade was me on my own battling the system and getting very little in terms of support. Even the governing body for the sport weren't interested. They just saw women's weightlifting as the sideline. And it wasn't until I was producing better results on an international stage than any of our men that they had to take me seriously. And I guess that, that was when I got funded as a, an athlete. And that was when even more jealousy and bitterness and in-house fighting happened. The governing body was awful in terms of support. Absolutely terrible. For me, it was the thought of having to make a phone call or an email to the governing body stressed me out so much that I used to delegate that to my coach to deal with. So he took the, take the pressure off. And I mean, even going away to competitions, it was a men's team and me. And, you know, I was always left out. I was always pushed to one side, but for me, it didn't matter because I had a focus. I had a goal and my goal was performance orientated, not to go away on a trip and, and, and piss it up. It was, it was about going and doing the best that I could. And I guess I was professional before the sport was professional. Um, but even now, you know, I'm female. I'm passionate about what I do in terms of coaching. And even now I come up against some pig-headed males in the governing body who just will not accept that maybe some of the points I've got to make are better than some of the points they're making. And that is a big reason why I've stepped away from it. And I'm just doing my own thing. I'm just ticking over, enjoying what I'm doing, working with people who really want to improve and, and sharing my knowledge and experience through my book, uh, through podcasts and through social media channels. All I want to do is help other people now to, to be the best that they can be. It's just a real shame that particularly male dominated sport is still being dominated by males who are not as passionate and have the same vision. That sounds like a real nightmare. And I can imagine that being really stressful. That probably ends up being something that stops a lot of girls and women from pursuing the sport to an elite stage just because it's just hard. I think if anybody is taking part in weightlifting or any sport, to be honest, if the goals are strong enough, if the vision that somebody has is strong enough, then you won't let those kind of things get in the way. I've used them as... I've used the negatives and the challenges as a positive to fuel my performance and to drive me forwards and to make me even more determined. So yes, it can be hard, but so is anything. And if, if something's worth achieving, then you kind of want it to be hard to make it feel like you've really achieved at the end of the day. So for me very much, I have the attitude of if there's a negative situation, do what you can to turn it into a positive. Um, that, that for me is just how I work and, and how I operate. How do you do that? Just focusing on what you want to get out of it. 
yeah, as I said, I think if the goal and the, the drive is strong enough, then you will find a way. Even with the current situation with COVID-19, when we found out we were getting zero support from, from government, literally nothing at all, not a penny, we thought, oh shoot, what are we going to do? You know, we can't do our training camps. We can't run the seminars. We can't do all the things that I do. That's, that's how I generate income. Um, and for me, it was a case of, okay, sit back, have, have a strop for a few minutes, then put a plan together and work out, there's the barrier in front of me. How am I going to get over it? How am I going to get around it? What else can I do? And as an athlete, the biggest challenges that we faced were injuries. So, Every time I got injured, I could have got upset, had a strop and been angry and, and all of those emotions and achieved what? But actually, I looked at it and thought, OK, with a rational head on, I'm injured. I can't do what I want to do. But what can I do? How can I use this time productively to make sure that, that when I'm ready, I'm able to come back fitter, stronger, healthier and, and ready to be competitive again? So... It's just, I guess, the mindset of an athlete, which is taking a negative situation and making it a positive. How do you curate that mindset in the students that you work with when you're helping coach them through their training, but also their injuries? Yeah, so it's normally injuries, which is where you normally have the, the issue or a bad performance in competition. And having the the negative emotions that we've just described there are important as well it's very much like a grieving process so to give an athlete a little bit of time and a little bit of space to have a cry to, to have a strop to do what they want to do is is important but quickly followed up by that coach athlete chat and and to try and do so in a, in a very with a very rational head and, and for me the conversation normally goes well you know it is what it is you you're hurt you're injured you can't change that it doesn't matter how much you throw your toys out the pram how much you stamp your feet or, or cry it's not going to change it but what we can do is is look at getting the best support around you um, let's look at a realistic time frame and straight away it's about goal setting it's about saying okay well in a you know th this injury for example might take three months it might take six months but the good news is we've got time to work on these other bits that you're currently struggling with um, and, and it's about refocusing the mind and, and instead of having that goal of competition it's about that athlete just re revisiting their goals and saying okay we've still got that goal but hang on a minute let's just rewind let's just do a few other things here and there that are going to make sure that that goal is uh, more easily achievable when the time is right it's about rationalizing I think the thought process and you know it's a, these things happen that's life it's about if life was a straight road, it'd be too easy. Let's have these hurdles. Let's have these obstacles in the way because that's what makes us uh, the characters that we become. I've noticed in coaches for sure that often these injuries are what end up turning them into better coaches. So like all of the coaches who I know who are the best co coaches are the ones that hurt themselves at some point and had to figure out how to manage that and get better. Do you think when you hurt your back, you kind of learnt a similar lesson? Oh my goodness, yeah. I've learnt so much from injuries. And I, if you haven't, I mean, if you go, go onto YouTube and type my name in with uh, Michaela Breeze weightlifting, uh, or no, Michaela Breeze Beijing Olympics, you'll get a two minute video of, of what happened to me in Beijing. And I, I lifted with a broken back. But I look back now and whilst I didn't perform very well, that one competition, I probably learned more about myself than I ever would have done if I was fit. And then lessons that you don't necessarily know at the time, but upon reflection with a little bit more maturity, you look back and think, oh my God, the human body is amazing. How, how can you push through things like that? So, you know, the injuries and mindset, they come hand in hand and they're skills, they're lessons that need to be learned. And it's only through those challenging times that, that you learn so much more about yourself. What advice would you give to women listening to this who might be interested in getting into weightlifting, but they're not really sure where to start? Drop me an email. <laughs> Simple as that. I'm running with, with the way things are now across the world. I'm running more and more Zoom sessions um, because of time differences and what have you. I'm looking now at running one day zoom sessions so rather than having to travel all the way to south wales to see me 
you can you can shine in all over the world uh, and the results we've had thus far have been fantastic so i work with people of all ages and abilities and all levels from complete beginner somebody who's never picked up a bar before all the way through to national international level lifters it doesn't bother me all i have to do is differentiate my coaching and i love working with beginners i love working with people with very little experience because they're the ones you can have so much more uh, effect with and and it's so much easier as well when people don't have bad habits already ingrained so just reach out i'm on instagram at makayla breeze or email makayla breeze at hotmail.com um, just touch base if you, you you want some guidance on where to start i've got a book out which which details a whole load of things which can be useful for a beginner uh, particularly with things to watch out for so if you don't want to come to me it's just things to be mindful of and, and who and what to look for in a in a good coach um, and I've got coaching resources as well. Uh, so if Zoom sessions don't work or you don't want to work in person, there's videos that can be worked through uh, in, in your own time. So there's lots of resources out there that I've, I've put together to, to help people who, like you've described, are keen to get involved but don't really know where to start. And with the technical side of stuff, you talk a lot about the pull or it not being a pull. Yeah. Do you want to elaborate on that a little bit? Yeah, so... This is a male thing as well. This drives me nuts. Our sport's been dominated by men. It always has been. And, and the way the sport is coached, when the bar comes off the floor, from the floor to about mid-thigh or just past the knees, is referred to as the first pull. And from mid-thigh up is referred to as the second pull. But when coaching it, in the start position, you have a nice straight back. You have... Um, your bum lower than your shoulders, uh, your arms are nice and long. And even the people that call it a pull also agree that the arms should stay relaxed or should stay long and loose. And if the arms are long and loose and the only thing, the only muscle groups to be working are really the quads and the glutes to extend the knee and the hip, then how is that a pull? It's a fucking push. <laughs> it's as simple as that. And what the message I'm trying to get across is that poor terminology is causing a lot of technical errors in our sport and if you coach a beginner that this is the first pull what are they going to do bend their elbows exactly they're going to start bending the arms early and, and then that as soon as the arms bend the power ends you, you don't get the legs into the lift so i'm trying single-handedly at the moment to change the terminology that people are using and the feedback i've had from people that have read my book or watched some of the posts I put on social media and they're, they're like oh my god why haven't I thought of that this is it's like a light bulb moment to me it's not rocket science it's very basic biomechanics and and also the the understanding of how an athlete's brain works when they take what a coach says quite literally so for me it's about changing terminology to optimize results and why wouldn't you? Why wouldn't you change that terminology if you're going to get better results? Uh, but for our governing body saying, that's the way we've always coached it. Brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. Priceless. I, th I think it's incredible how the way we've always done it becomes the reason not to do, do something better. And it's, it's basically the history of like humans, or I mean, the history of white men, I guess. But it's about evolution the sport has changed the way that people lift has changed but yet some of the powers that be are so pig-headed and stubborn that they won't change and i'm thinking outside the box i'm i'm trying to push boundaries i'm trying to challenge things and, and create discussion around it because that's the only way we we instigate change that's all, I, all i'm interested in again is lifters performing the best they can and i believe this is one of the things that needs to change for that to happen I think it's really interesting because the the language we use is really powerful. As someone who is a mediocre beginner weightlifter who's like can sometimes do okay, if I think pull, I will pull the bar and it will be terrible and I'll fail. And if I think push the floor away, it's normally fine. But I wasn't taught push the floor away which i think is why sometimes it doesn't work very well because yeah, trying to change bad habits exactly so like yeah. reprogramming that pattern 
and also the way you think about what you're doing becomes really important because it's the same with like a squat right if you're doing front squats or back squats and you think stand up it doesn't usually work as well as if you think push the floor away because I don't, I mean, I don't know why, but you're much more likely to stand up straight if you think to push the floor away than if you think to stand up where sometimes yeah. you end up over here. Well, maybe a better, ter- better terminology would be comparing somebody who says, don't round the back with someone that says, sit straight. They mean the same thing, but one is phrased in a negative way. One is phrased in a positive. So again, it comes down to terminology that's being used. And, and choice of words. And this is why I say, again, I, I find it a lot easier to work with a complete beginner who has no bad habits because I'm not trying to change a mindset. I'm not trying to uh, reprogram motor patterns. Those motor patterns aren't there. But when you've got those motor patterns already ingrained, it takes time and, and lots of practice and repetition to change bad habits into good ones. How long do you think it normally takes someone who's been lifting for like, I don't know, five, 10 years to then learn how to undo the bad bits and redo them better? That's a good question. And and I can answer that with confidence because I did it myself from the age of 13 through to about 19. So about five, four or five years. No, no. My maths maths is terrible. Six years, maybe seven (laughs) years. Um, I used to be a shrugger and a puller. That's how I was coached. Uh, I was coached old school. And then when I changed coaches and I changed how I lifted my technique I spent six months on an empty bar and I spent six months doing heavy squats um, substituting pulls for snatch or clean grip deadlifts so I could still work on my strength off the floor but at the same time giving me a chance to focus on relaxing my arms Um, so I maintained strength through deadlifts and, and squats but the rest of the stuff was all my technical work was all on an empty bar or like 25 kilos, nothing substantial. And I spent session after session after session, drilling, drilling, drilling. And I had the discipline to do it because I had no other option. I would plateaued for 18 months. I wasn't improving and I wasn't happy. And it was either a case of give up or, or change. So for that reason, I stuck with the changes and I gave my new coach uh, a chance to, to break me. And he, and he did. He broke me physically and he broke me mentally. But more importantly, he then built me back up to believe in myself and to believe that I could do anything. Um, and, and his name was Ken Price. And Ken unfortunately passed away in a car crash just six months after I'd met him. Uh, but after just six months and having not improved for 18 months, I improved. And I continued to improve in every competition for the next few years to qualify for an Olympic Games. And it's only because I had that mindset and that discipline to, to keep the weights light and drill, drill, drill and retune and re, relearn how to move that I was able to go on and achieve what I did. I share that story in my book as well. Learning how to move, I think, is often something that people bypass a bit when it comes to training generally but Olympic lifting especially you see a lot of people who are really strong think that that means that they'll be able to lift well but then they're just muscling the bar up all of the time and they haven't figured out how to move efficiently what advice would you give for those people what are your thoughts on this particularly for people that are transferring from other sports into weightlifting, they might have come from an athletics background, they might have come from a gymnastics background or a CrossFit background. Just because you're physically well-conditioned and strong means bugger all in this sport. It's, it's helpful, but it means nothing because you've got three areas that need to be developed equally. Obviously, you've got the physical strength, so that's a bonus if they come with that. You've got the technique, which is where I come into play and I try to pass on good, good movement patterns. But you've also got the mindset. It's only when you can get somebody with all three of those can you then produce a good lifter. So somebody who is already physically well-developed and conditioned means nothing if they don't have the discipline to the technique. So for a lifter or for somebody coming to the sport with that kind of background, then I would ask them to think of a pyramid. And if you think of a pyramid, the bigger the foundation, the bigger the peak. 
And for somebody who is prepared to develop that foundation of movement, then the further they're going to go. If you think you can come in and master that in a week, two weeks, a month, or six months even, forget it. It's not going to happen. You need to be disciplined for well in excess of six months. And that is training three, four, five times a week. You need to have the discipline to hold the weights back and look for mastery of movement before you can even think about putting weights on. Only then will we be able to convert those talented physical specimens, if you want to refer to them as that, into good weightlifters. And this was proven in the initiative that British Weightlifting had um, I can't remember what they, they, they did. They did a talent transfer program and it was horrendous to sit back and watch and to see how they took talented young women who have come from other sports who are keen, really keen to do really well in weightlifting. And they were ruined, ruined in the first few weeks. They were pushed heavy way before they were ready. And it was embarrassing to see a competition when these girls were, were ripping the bar up because they were physically strong, but with little... Uh, efficiency of movement and in my view as a coach that is something that should be mastered way before you load a bar um so so my view is that that was done completely arse backwards and we lost or we wasted a lot of potential talent that had it been harnessed in a slightly different way i think would have gone on to to do very very well it's hard i think when you're new and you're strong to hold back because it is so much fun like weightlifting is fun and you just want to see what you can do and you can see other people throwing all of these heavy weights around and you just want to play. And then you're lucky if you don't get hurt, <laughs> if you do it that way. And, and you've got to be a little bit crazy to, to do this sport anyway. And if you've got somebody that is, is ready to go and they're physically strong, that is not, they just need to understand that is not the, the green light to just go. That's the green light to say, do you know what? You've got a massive advantage here. But let's spend a bit of time working on the technique and the foundations and then you're going to fly. It's a no brainer for me, but yet you just so hard to get an athlete with that physical condition to have the discipline to hold the weights back. It is really hard. Like I sprained my wrist almost two years ago because I got really, really excited and then probably cleaned and snatched four or five times in a week for like three hours at a time. And I was like, this is so much fun. Look how much fun I'm having. And then my wrist was gone. And it actually still hurts if I do too much now, even though it's been two years because the tendon's just like, I hate you. Stop it. This is crazy. And it taught me a valuable lesson in volume control. So, and I can see, I can see why it's so easy. But then I guess this is why you have to have someone being sensible and being like, no, no, stop. You don't need to do... You don't need to do it that heavy. Just wait. Yeah, I have, I have it all the time. People wanting to go heavy and wanting to do too much. And, and there's an optimal volume that as coaches we try to prescribe. But again, some of the coaches out there, yeah, they're qualified, but they don't know diddly squat when it comes to programming. It's, it's you know, you take an athlete, you've got to have a responsibility of care, a duty of care to make sure that you don't overtrain that person. Overtraining is not a good thing causing injury is not a good thing it's a very fine balance and you need to get to know your athletes and you need to be able to get them moving really well before you push the weights and for, for coaches who push the weights too early in my view is is very irresponsible how important is mobility when it comes to developing good movement patterns mobility specific to the sport is critical you you to be a good lifter, you need to be able to sit into a deep squat position. So requires good mobility around the knees, hips, ankles. Uh, to hold a bar overhead in an overhead squat position requires good mobility around the shoulders. But at the same time, there's an optimal point of what is good mobility and what is over mobile. So you get some people saying, oh, I, you know, I've got great mobility for weightlifting. And I look at them and think, no, you don't. You've got way too much mobility. And then on the flip side, and more commonly, you see people that don't have good enough mobility and as a re result try and get into positions that their bodies just won't allow them to or that they're not ready for and then they're predisposed to injury so depending on who I'm working with and what I see whether it be on a zoom session or in person I assess that person's mobility straight away and and decide whether yeah this is something that can be worked on and developed 
or whether this is just this person and they ain't ever going to be a great weightlifter and we just need to work with what they've got. So that's, I guess, an assessment that myself as a coach would make when I see somebody move. And if someone is too mobile, what sort of things do you focus on to stabilize them so they've got a bit more control under the bar? Yes, it depends on the body part. As to, to, it's normally shoulders. Shoulders can be off, often hypermobile or hips. Um, so it would be strengthening exercises for the small muscle groups, the small stabilizing muscle groups in and around those joints uh, and, and no, no extra stretching. I'm, I'm hypermobile, which I think is probably one of the reasons that I really like weightlifting because it's really easy to sit in the bottom position. But it means that I get hurt all of the time, although not, not as much lately because I've learned that strength training is important but it's something I see all of the time people who are super bendy going into things where you need to be super bendy but then not having the strength to control their joints and then your tendons get pissed off at you yeah right you've got you've got to be able to cope with what you're doing so uh, for somebody like yourself I would be doing quite a bit of uh, stability work so for example in a deep squat position bar overhead sit in that position and have someone that you trust uh, stand behind you and also that's in your social bubble um the stand behind you and just just move the bar around forwards backwards side to side twist it um just enough so that you can resist from that deep squat position and that just helps activate those little muscles that we need to stabilize the relevant joints so it's a very specific drill specific to the, the positions that we need to be in i could do the same in a jerk position as well so get yourself in a jerk position bar overhead and have someone push the bar in different directions so that you have to activate the relevant muscle groups. What sort of other lifts should would you be recommending for people to do to support their Olympic lifts? So we've already mentioned deadlifts and squats a little bit. What else do you think people should be incorporating into their week? Uh, so can I just uh, address power snatch, power clean? These are exercises that are relevant, but I wouldn't prescribe to anybody in the first six months of training. I would, I would want to work with a beginner or somebody new to the sport, developing the full lifts before they even consider powers. And even then, when they do consider powers, that there's no technical change in terms of how you move. So anybody out there who is wanting to start this sport and goes to a gym and the first thing they're taught is to power snatch or power clean, can I suggest you give serious consideration to the knowledge of those coaches? Because if you power in the early days, you will always struggle to get into a deep squat position. Whereas if you learn to do a squat lift first, then you've got a chance of, of moving well. So the exercises that I've gone, do you want to say something? Yeah, I just think that's so interesting because I feel like most people learn how to power snatch or power clean first because going the whole way down is terrifying. <laughs> yeah, but that's only because you've not been taught properly. That's My people that work with me will get comfortable in that squat position before we even put a bar overhead. So we, we do a lot of work in the overhead squat. We do some snatch balance, even if it's just with a broomstick. And there's no fear then. When you don't have a heavy weight in your hand, there's no fear. You, you get over that fear whilst learning to move quickly. And then when you know how to move quickly and you put a bar in your hand, suddenly it's not as scary. So I want my lifters to be as comfortable in that squat position as they are in a standing position. Only then are we ready to start lifting. You get a coach that will teach somebody to power snatch or power clean, and they do so for the reasons you've just said, because it's easier. Well, we're not looking for the easy option here. We're looking for this lifter to move well. So let's teach them to move well, because those lifters that are taught to power in the early days almost certainly are, are lifting with their upper body. They're, they're ripping it up. They're not using the, the big muscle groups efficiently. So exercises that I would endorse in the early days, I would be teaching a lot of hang cleans and hang snatches to my lifters and I wouldn't even bother going from the floor for the first handful of sessions maybe the first two or three weeks only when they're moving brilliantly on a hang snatch or a hang clean would I bother teaching them the first phase of the lift from the floor to mid thigh and I would then isolate that as a, a movement which can be used as an exercise uh, first phase or snatch or clean grip deadlift and the focus of that is to maintain good positions and to develop strength off the floor, then I would be linking the two together. Uh, jerks, I would always teach a split jerk first because it's more complicated. I'd get, I'd get the difficult bits over with, but I would teach a jerk off the bar. I wouldn't give a lifter a bar until they can hit 10 out of 10 reps, 10 sets consistently, just moving with absolute precision with no bar. Only then are they ready to have uh, a bar in their hands. 
So I'd be looking at hang, hang lifts. So when I coach hang, it's from mid-thigh. That way we remove any momentum on the bar. So we have to develop power through the second phase of the lift. I coach hang snatch below knee for the focus of developing back strength. Um, and then we use blocks quite a lot. And the blocks are pretty much the same reasons as we would for hang, but you can put the bar in the right position straight away. Um, so you don't have the hassle of all the extra brain power required to lower into the right position as well. So other snatch exercises. So yeah, it'd be hang snatch, snatch below knee, power snatch only when they're moving efficiently, squat snatch from the floor, blocks. An experienced lifter, I would throw in snatch from deficit where they stand on something so the bar is a little bit lower. That's a horrible exercise for the back. And then cleans, all of, all of what I've said. So squat cleans, hang cleans, cleans from blocks, um, cleans from deficit, power cleans. And then jerk exercises, I'd be doing split jerks, power jerks, push press. Um, and then assistance exercises, you've got your front squats, uh, sorry, front squats and back squats, we would always alternate between sessions. And then assistance exercises, things like good mornings, bent forward rows, tricep extensions, bicep curls, loads of core exercises, rotator cuff exercises, exercises for the little muscle groups that we often neglect. And they're the ones that will often save us from injury. What sort of rotator cuff things do you make sure to include? Um, so an easy one is just to lie on your side with a, with a small weight. I'm talking two and a half kilo disc. Actually lying on the side, elbow tucked into your side and kind of keeping your elbow at 90 degrees, moving the weight down and up uh, without twisting the body. Um, we'd, we'd sometimes use bands. Bands, to be honest, I only bother using with my lifters when they've got maybe a shoulder niggle. So when there's already an injury present, we would use bands then as part of rehab. Um, so you could do it as well in a standing position with a light disc, uh, arm out to the side, elbow at 90 degrees, and we keep the elbow stationary, uh, dropping the weight down and then lifting up. That's another exercise. There's, there's quite a few out there that you can do. The, the list is not definitive, um, but I would choose one or two exercises just to keep those little muscle groups engaged uh, to, with the aim of keeping injuries away. If then you do suffer a shoulder injury, you need to give a little bit more attention and, and get somebody to help you with uh, slightly more advanced exercises to stabilize and, and set scapular in place, your shoulder blade in place um, for shoulder safety. And do you think someone should do all of their lifts in their lifters just because the goal is to be a better weightlifter? Or do you think they should still do some things in flats or in bare feet just so they get that extra ankle challenge? I'd always say lifters. I can't get into a squat position with a bar overhead. Goodness me, when I do my demonstrations, if I'm barefoot or in trainers, I don't get into as good a position as I do with lifters on. So I would 100% suggest lifters um, to, to, to yeah, get into a specific range because the positions are slightly different with the back and the shoulders if you're not in lifters. So I would always say do your lifting wearing lifting shoes. Uh, and then your conditioning, that doesn't matter. You can take your shoes off, do some plyometrics, some, some core work, some arm work. That, that's irrelevant whether you're wearing lifting shoes or trainers. And then if, would that include like your deadlifts? So would you do your deadlifts in your lifters too? Yeah, yeah deadlifts and lifting shoes because, again, it'll, you, you'll be in the same position then when you're coming off the floor. Awesome. Thank you. That was very helpful. I'm going to change direction slightly. Mm -hmm. What was it like being a gay athlete in the 90s and the zeros and being in the public light i wasn't gay in the 90s or in the on the noughties you not <laughs> i guess that made it easier um, yeah. maybe i was but i didn't know it i don't know um to be honest i was just so focused on my sport and what i wanted to achieve relationships kind of took second place when i came out in ooh, 2009 uh it was it was difficult i've been brought up in a part of the world where nobody was gay <laughs> i used to live in the southwest it was it, it, i didn't know anybody that was gay um even then for the latter part of my career in weightlifting it was nobody's business it was just my business now i i, I think i have the attitude that why, why put a label on it you know i'm happy i'm, I'm married i've got two beautiful boys um i don't know i think maybe it's changed the way i see the world it's changed what i see love to be i i always really like to see gay people in public places and positions i think just because when 
I was a little gay kid, there weren't any anywhere. And when you don't see people who are like you, it makes you feel like maybe there are no people. Like you said, you didn't know any gay people. Yeah, I so. guess I guess look at it now and, and, and I do see that, that people probably see me as maybe a bit of a role model in that uh, or somebody to look up to. But I guess I would just encourage people not to put a label on it. What is it like trying to run a business with two children? <laughs> I wouldn't say impossible, but challenging. <laughs> it's um, yeah, we got twin boys, six months old. In a couple of days, I'll be six months. My goodness me, wow is all I've got to say. Um, I don't know what I expected, but life has changed. Simple as that. It has changed for the better. Uh, although I'm very much looking forward at some point, hopefully not too far away, to get a bit more sleep. Uh-huh. Um, I don't know how long we've been trying to put this this interview together for. I know I've I've been uh, otherwise engaged with the, with the little rascals, but do you know what? Running a business anyway, if you do it properly and you give it your all, is tough uh, because you, you what you put in will determine what you get out. Simple as that. So my focus has obviously changed, and therefore putting the time in that I would have done previously is is just not possible. So I'm trying to work uh, more intelligently at the moment and grabbing whatever opportunity I can. I'm sure it'll get a bit easier, um, but it's fun. You know, I got, I got to, again, it's another challenge, and we've got to look at it as, uh, as something that we'll overcome, something that we'll deal with, we'll find a way whatever that way will be but I'm enjoying the challenge and at the moment businesses is is still ticking over and we still and I have a lot of uh, initiatives soon to be uh, launched as well can't say too much just yet but but keep an eye on my website keep an eye on my social media that's exciting have you and your wife been able to still get your own training in around raising the boys firstly I retired for a reason and that reason (laughs) was to become a lazy bum Uh, (laughs) I got no ambition to train anymore. I just got no drive. That said, I've, I, I need to stay in shape. Now I'm 41 now. I've got to keep ticking over just so I can manage the boys and, and cope with the demands that life places on us. Um, the first few months were very difficult. I'm not going to lie. That was whew, so hard. And it was Sinead, actually, who in her own right is, is an international athlete. I played rugby sevens for Wales at the last Commonwealth Games. And it was her mindset and focus and desire to want to get back into shape post-birth. And it was her that said after about about three months, she said, right, I'm going to the gym. She said, you've got the boys, I'm off to the gym. <laughs> and we've got a gym at home. So that, that was easy in terms of logistics. But even so, I have the boys for, for an hour, hour and a half in the morning whilst Sinead trains. And that's Monday to Friday. And she doesn't miss a session. That's and then I, well, I was getting a bit, hang on a minute, I'm, I'm getting weaker by the day. You're getting stronger. I'm not happy about this. So we then tried splitting it and I would then do a session a bit later in the day. But once we get home from this trip at the moment, um, it's our intention to take the boys into the gym, um, give them some toys to play with. And hopefully we can do a little circuit together with the boys watching and, and doing their own thing. So we want to give them an opportunity to be in that environment. And when they're ready to, I say, throw dumbbells around, goodness knows what they're going to do. They've got toy dumbbells at the moment. But just to give them an opportunity, really, to see what it's like to, to live a healthy lifestyle and, and for us to, you know, get back to doing things together. That's so nice. I've seen videos of little tiny toddlers with PVC pipes and little, like, half kilo plates on each side learning how to snatch. Do you think that'll be your kids when they're a bit bigger? Well, I sure hope not. I'm going to encourage them way away from weightlifting. <laughs> no, I mean, it, we, we, we're going to encourage them to do whatever they want to do. I think first and foremost, we want to teach them to swim. That just being a life skill. Uh, I'd love them to do gymnastics. And I would really encourage them, if I'm going to, not force them, but if I'm going to really encourage them to do anything, it would be gymnastics. And purely for body weight management and, and body awareness. And then from there, I don't really care what they do. So long as they're happy, healthy having fun then whatever they want to do we we will support and if they show an interest in lifting then for sure I'll show them how to lift uh, with good good technique and if that just gives them a basic foundation upon which they can build at a later date if they want then great if they never go back to it again then so be it but I want them to have fun and and be, be be healthy that's that's all we're interested in. Do you have any advice or perhaps warnings for any mothers listening trying to do all of the things? To do all of what things? Not just all of all of the things. 
in terms of what raising children running a business and uh, plan simple as that it's the same with anything that we do anything that i've ever done has required a plan even from from now week to week i've got a plan that we've shared in our little family whatsapp group so i know when i'm allowed to work while i'm away <laughs> and when i've got to go and, and and be sociable um if you plan things in you're more likely to stick to it and if you've got a goal something you want to achieve with a time frame then that can be the biggest driving force um but as well i think for i've got a new appreciation now for for mums out there and just look after yourself as well because if you're not healthy i don't know I, I'm, I'm worried right now about getting covid myself um, not so much for the boys but if if we get it how can i cope to look after them so yeah looking after yourself i think is key thank you so much for your time today oh i totally forgot to tell you because this has been a process of trying to find time but usually at the end of the podcast i like to ask guests to tell me a fun fact do you have any fun facts off the top of your head that you would like to share with our listeners today ride a unicycle that's cool <laughs> do you have a unicycle uh, no i don't i have one as a kid growing up i think my, my father was just trying to keep me entertained for a while and it certainly did but um yeah i can ride a unicycle and there we are I can that is a very cycle. cool fact i used to have a unicycle when I was 18 to 19, but I only ever learned how to go in a straight line. I never figured out how to turn. Oh, you were close. So close. I don't know where it's gone, which is a shame. But where can people listening find you or find your book if they want to hear more from you? Uh, so my website is powerposition.co.uk. Pretty much everything is on there from seminars to courses uh, to my book. Um, pretty much everything is on my website, powerposition.co.uk. Follow me on Instagram at Michaela Breeze um, for coaching tips particularly. Um, and yeah, just drop me a message if you've got any other questions. Awesome. Thank you so much, Michaela. And until next time, guys.